Hi, and welcome to our weekly podcast about things that interest programmers, and we're calling it Code Monkey Talks. Uh, I'm your co-host, Brian Jackson, and I'm joined with... I'm Brian Demers. And uh, Tim O'Brien. Uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, we're very excited to have Tim on the podcast uh, this week. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about uh, some nar- uh, news articles uh, from the week, and then... We are going to talk with Tim in depth about what he's doing at Walmart Labs. And then uh, we are going to uh, leave you with something to do uh, at the end of the show. So let's get into it. Um, So this next segment is in the news. Uh, We are going to talk about some current events. And we each pick a story and uh, we'll we'll discuss it um, as a group. So, Brian, uh, what was your story? All right, so... Lego just announced uh, at CES, um, basically, it's not necessarily an upgrade to the Mindstorms robotics kit, but it's a new platform called uh, Lego Boost. So it's definitely aimed, I think, towards slightly younger kids, um, and it's more controlled. The brain of the robotics, I guess, is more controlled through a tablet, um, mm-hmm. but the price point is sub $200 and the current like Mindstorms is, you know, 350 or something, some, something that you don't just go pick up at the store, you know? Um, so I'm really yeah. excited both for me and I have a 10 year old son. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to get him into it. We play with Legos all the time. The, um, the interface from what it seems like is very drag and drop kind of, um, I forget, um, a stitch. There's a couple other, you know, drag and drop programming interfaces, but uh, it looks great. So I'm I'm super excited. Awesome. Do you, I haven't taken a look at it. Is it something that's based on like Scratch from MIT? The um the Scratch visual, is like, what I was trying to think of. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it looks more like uh, what is it the 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 um, Google port of of Scratch, which is um, sorry, uh, I I forget what it's called, but there, there's another uh, Scratch like puzzle pieces, drag and drop. Uh, it looked like they had some loops, some basic things. So, so it should be pretty, pretty basic. Um, but as with all of the other Mindstorms and, and other things they've released, there's always been third-party APIs and whatnot to do more advanced things. So I'm super excited for both the drag-and-drop portion and the potential of, of any other growth in there. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Legos. Um, we, uh, you know, I've got a, a son who's eight, my daughter's 10, and we've got lots of Legos in our family. And um, I would love this as a platform because we haven't gotten to the Mindstorm stuff because of the price point. And so this sounds like it would be much more in our wheelhouse. Uh, Tim, do you dabble in Lego at all? My life is Legos. I have a six year old and I have an 11 year old. I just got finished putting the X Wing fighter together. Oh, so, um, brilliant. and I, I probably step on about two or three Legos a day, so I've got the wounds to show it. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> and and is it um, uh, so? It sounds like you said the X Wing has a lot of like the gear mechanisms and stuff. So so you're not into just the like the plain vanilla no moving parts ones. You, you get know, into the, the moving stuff. For us, there's there's like uh, you know a couple of moving parts, but we try to keep it simple and you know go back to the basics. Yeah, yeah, because at, at at that age. Um, Right, you know, you don't want it to be too complex because I'm sure the builds get boring at some point, or you lose interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and to be honest, you know, I actually identify with uh, the bad guy in the Lego Movie. I I like to glue them together, but uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to not do that. 
No. Yes. Craggle. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my, my kids have moved past the age where things get destroyed if I'm not around. So I, I feel you. There was definitely a point in my life where I was like, I would very much like to glue everything together so that I, when I get home at night, the stuff still exists. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk about uh, another news story. This one personally affected me. Uh, yesterday, uh, Adobe released a new version of uh, Acrobat Reader. And uh, it silently installed a new Chrome extension to um, to the browser. And thankfully, Chrome, what it does is it will ask you um, every time you install an extension if you'd like to um, keep it or not. Uh, so it at least highlighted that uh, this, this was installing something. But I just thought this was such a bad actor um, type of a, a move. Um, I know I've had issues with uh, Acrobat uh, in the past, just with Adobe always popping up with, you know, asking for, uh, for you to run the updates, uh, which was annoying enough. But this is the first time where I've seen them kind of install something silently like that. Um, I happen to be on Windows. I, I think both of you guys probably are on Mac. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was chuckling when you brought this up because I, I remember yeah. those pains, but it's been a while. Yeah, right. It's like Windows, Windows problem. <laughs> it's also surprising because there's a very high profile hack that, that was reported about two years ago. Um, people staying in really high end hotels uh, were um, using hacked Wi-Fi access points that would try to upgrade Acrobat and it would install malware. So, uh, oh, man. It's very interesting, like, if you work at Adobe and you're in charge of making these decisions, you know, what goes into that? And I wonder internally, did anyone try to fight back and say, bad right. idea, don't do this? Yeah, I mean, uh, it feels like that there might have been, you know, an engineering team that's like, this is a bad idea, but there's a product team or a marketing team that's like, no, we really want to have this integration. Right. Um, you know, that's that's in my in in my career, I've seen that type of a, a thing go down. Not to say that I have any inside knowledge, but I could see something like that happening. Um, which, which is just too bad because it just, it really can sully a brand, um, things like this. Uh, and, you know, and Adobe has been fighting them I mean, just with the fact that, that Flash has been on such a downtrend, um, and is practically for all purposes dead, uh, at this point. Um, you know, I, I, for them to do something like this is, is, I don't want to say surprising, but, but, uh, you know, it's something that I, I'm really, uh, I'm shocked that they would, would think that this is a good idea. It's, it's so weird because it, it's not a bad idea, but all you have to do is ask a question. Like, do you want to also yeah. install this? That's right. It's really about the user experience, right? Cause that's it. If, if it, right. it, the update had popped up, it said, Hey, we're updating Adobe reader. We have this new feature. Uh, it's a Chrome extension. Would you like us to install it? And I get the, the option to say no. That's a much better experience. So yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's that story. Tim, did you want to talk about something? Um, you know, yeah, kind of yeah, relative so, to the uh, the news. So I've got a news story that just hit. It's um, Atlassian just purchased Trello for four hundred and twenty five million dollars, and it's just it's interesting because you know Atlassian is one of those tools that I think we've all sort of uh, grown up with in a way, um, and um, it, what what strikes me as interesting is, um, you know, you don't think of Atlassian as a company that's buying other companies for that much money. The other data point is 
I listen to public radio a lot, and there's all these ads for Atlassian being the the tool of choice for um, you know non-technical workers. So just Atlassian tunneling into the sort of realm of the real world uh, and buying a company like Trello that that just seems like a, a big tectonic shift. Um, you know, how much is Atlassian worth? It's a very interesting company to me because uh, I mean it's not that long ago that you know we probably went to conferences and. You know, we're hanging out with Atlassian when they were like a 10-person company. Yeah, yeah. And I always think of Atlassian as just Jira, you know, software bugs, not necessarily, um, you know, call center or, or other sort of, you know, non-software related projects, right? I mean, right. granted, that's that's the the house that I live in, but um, it's still, that's, that's, that's how I correlate things. Yeah, without giving anything away, I mean, but my, most of my life is uh, spent in... Atlassian tools. So, um, you know, everything. I, I mean, for the last 12 years, like it or not, it, it just sort of has a lock on everything these days. In fact, yep. I would find it strange to work at somewhere that didn't use Jira. Yeah, uh, we, we use Jira, um, but we also use a mix of sort of, um, you know, GitHub issues and, and some other tools. But but still, Jira's everywhere. We use it. Yeah, and then, and then like, think back in... Uh, in the Apache Software Foundation, do you remember, maybe this was 10 years ago at this point, there was a big argument about Bugzilla versus Jira. And, um, you know, there's some very valid points on the other side. Jira is, is a proprietary product, but it just, it just quickly took over. You know, I'm not even sure if Bugzilla still exists, but, um, you know, I'm sure it's still written in Perl. Yeah, um, I know Red Hat still uses Bugzilla. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's kind of painful going back and you know switching between the two. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not trying to start a war about bug trackers. If you still use that tool, I and mean, it's great. <laughs> yes, I said yes, I mean, about it. Yes, people, people. It's like that's that's one of the religions, right? So stay away. <laughs> So I think what we'd like to next do, I'd like to introduce our guest, Tim uh, O'Brien, uh, uh, author, as well as now um, you're at Walmart Labs. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Sure. Um, I've got an awesome job, first of all. I, 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 I really like my job. It's, it's, um, it's, it's very uh, day-to-day. It's, uh, it's a very active job. Um, it might not be as awesome as your job. You get to work with spaceships and uh, Star Wars, uh, but it's uh, it's a great place to work. So I, I manage uh, uh, several DevOps teams for Walmart, uh, the team that runs Walmart.com, uh, U.S. Groceries, and Mobile. So it's about four teams. I also have a team that does stress testing and capacity planning and performance. Um, so DevOps has a really interesting definition. I mean, I I could talk yes. for for days and days about the fact that DevOps actually is very ill-defined, but for us, it means... Yeah. How do you define DevOps? It is people. So DevOps is made of people. Um, it's about communication, right? So you got developers um, who, who have a certain way of thinking, and you have operations. Um, and, you know, what I've seen in the past is uh, it's two different ways of thinking. Um, operations is focused on keeping things up and running, and development is focused on change. So... Um, DevOps is a, a, a set of people that get both of those modes of working and can sort of bridge those two groups. How it plays out in reality, 
it's still developing. And you know, I, I, I go back and forth. Some days I actually don't think DevOps is a job description at all. Um, it's, uh, it's really just a set of practices and uh, sort of an approach. How's that for yeah, the most abstract I, thing I could say? No, but that's really good because a lot of people will define it as, um, you know, more closer to systems engineering, right? And and a lot of kind of the traditional um, Unix admin uh, type of roles uh, and that, that it's an evolution of that. But uh, I'm with you that it's it's much more kind of the – uh, a culture change uh, in a in a company, so that's that's really awesome. Um, so, and how are you applying that at Walmart? So at at Walmart, well, first of all, we're 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 a very large company, right? Um, so you know, I I run about three of those DevOps groups. There's probably twenty to thirty distinct DevOps teams um, in and around just the organizations that, that that I have a view into. Each one of them is like a fingerprint. Um, and uh, the the three teams I run that do DevOps, they each do it differently. Um, and it all depends on, you know, do you have to support a lot of legacy systems? Do you have to support new systems? Um, what are the developer teams like that you support? Are they ready uh, to really take on responsibility? That Really the common uh, thread across all of the DevOps teams that um, I have influence over is I'm trying to devolve as much responsibility to the to the devs as possible, um, while also maintaining some structures for, you know, standards and control. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of contradictions when you try to scale DevOps um, to you know thousands of programmers. It's it's very different from the startup approach. Which I've done. So yeah, and and I'm sure trying to affect that change across that many people, um, I have some real questions around like how do you accomplish that? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of meetings, um, but I'm sure you're applying a, a lot of technology. You know, I know that you've uh, got a prolific uh, GitHub. Um, um, uh, organization uh, publicly, and you're doing some cool stuff in the open source space. Um, yeah, so tell me tell me more about that. So, I, so we have uh, we have a lot of different teams. So we have a team called Strati, which is focused on building tools and building platforms. Right. So uh, the the tools that we use to manage um, all of our OpenStack cloud. So we we have I think it's still true we have the largest OpenStack stack cloud in the world. So and to get there, we use a tool called OneOps, which is an open source platform as a service tool. And there's a, there's a whole host of other open source tools that we use. Um, that's on the platform side. On the architecture side, in um, the department that I'm in, we have a team that's built a, a framework for the front end called Electrode, which is based on Facebook's React. Um, and that's, you know, React is, is a framework, but Electrode tries to fill it out to be a, a, a whole platform for the application that you're trying to write. And it spans React Native to React Web. So we moved our whole website over to this new platform in the last 12 months. Um, and then in addition to that, we have you know thousands of developers working on different systems. We do Sam's Club, uh, Canada, Walmart.com. I mean, it's a it's a massive it's a massive operation. Um, it's so large that I forgot your original question. 
Oh, no. Yeah, no, that was that was awesome. I mean, I wanted to hear a little bit more about, you know, exactly the, the structure because it is. I'm sure it's it's huge. And, um, you know, and I've been very interested watching kind of what you've been doing as well as what some of these other um, role, you know, these other groups uh, have been uh, publishing on, on GitHub. One ops in, in particular was something that uh, I've been watching. Um, and so uh, also tell me about how you go about trying to affect change for thousands of developers. Um, like, wh what is your strategy? So I, I came to Walmart uh, from a startup background. I think that's actually how I met the two of you. Um, you know, focusing on build engineering and focusing on um, outreach. And um, I had a, had a lot of experience for years working at startups, running systems where DevOps meant you have an account with Heroku and you can just get everything done. And it's, it's all very, yeah. very easy. It's easy to do a deployment to production, you know, four or five times a day. In addition to that, I was doing architecture for uh, larger companies like Scholastic in which there was some real risk on the table. You know, you had to have mm. regular weekly releases. You might've had to go through an IT department. And I think at Walmart, the thing that I try to do is I try to bring that experience with clouds and platform as a service into what I do every day. So let's say we have a system that might not be the most cutting edge, like a system that's running on, you know, a 10 year old piece of software. I try to bring that as close to the platform model as possible. So I work very closely with our platform team to try to create as much self-service technology as possible so that teams that don't, that you wouldn't think of as practicing DevOps can start migrating towards a model where you don't need to have a separate ops team. You can have a development team mm. that's you know, running their own deployments. You can, you, you can do blue-green deploys in the middle of the day. You don't have to stay up all night and, and have huge uh, conference calls. So it's, I view my job as more, I, you know, I manage DevOps, but a lot of what I'm doing is trying to transform people to you know, embrace some of the things that I think you would probably uh, come to see as... Uh, you know, something that everybody does. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And and coming from large companies, I, I know there's that inertia to do it the way that it's always been done. Um, and so you've probably, you've got different roles of people or different, different types of people, you know, the, the people who are very skeptical of, um, you know, that this new process is going to work. Uh, you, you know, you get people who are very eager, but are inexperienced and haven't, uh, you know, they, the only thing that they've really, um, experienced is kind of the, the waterfall, um, you know, do a, a static release every, you know, few weeks or for every few months. Mm -hmm. Um, and so is that a culture that, that Walmart is kind of trying to shift from, or is it, um, is it relatively young as far as the technology stack and the technology So we have culture? all different kinds of projects and, and, and everyone there is on board with, you know, moving faster and getting people to be very self-driven. Um, for me mm -hmm. though, it's, it's, it's more of at a, at a large company, you always have some aspect of ITIL and, and, you know, I've, I've grown to know what these terms mean. Um, ITL, mm -hmm. it's a set of practices. It's very, it's very rigorous. Um, it, it reminds me as an application programmer, um, like of, of old, you know, booch method, uh, ideas where you have to think about everything before you start coding and everything has to be measured and monitored. And, and some of these ITIL based, based, uh, practices like production control and incident management, 
there is some process that you still have to maintain. I mean, there's real risk on the table, right? If the site goes down for a couple of minutes, it, it has real consequences. At the same time, if you want to have developers take more responsibility, you have to preserve some of that process, but then create structures that, that allow developers to move quickly with some, you know, audits and with some accountability that goes along with it. So it's DevOps at scale. Um, it, it really is about trying to bridge those two worlds. It, mm. it, yeah. We can't just have thousands of developers coming to work every day saying, today I'm going to try to use Chef and see if it works, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But but and um, that still that that still happens, right? So it's also about enabling a, a sort of democratic access to technology, uh, but then putting in some governance gates so that if people want to experiment, they can experiment over here with the thing that's not you know running all the transactions. Yeah, and so you've talked a little bit about the developer side. How about the operation side? Uh, you know, do you have a, an SRE team or a systems engineering team that is worried about the the hardware and the data centers separate from the developers, or is part of the culture shift getting the developers closer to that um, that think, infrastructure so, management? So, so the SRE team is new, and we are building out uh, an SRE function, and it's uh, part of the part of the operation side. Uh, we have a knock. I think the knock is one of the reasons why I work for Walmart. I, I walked in the knock the first time and it's got that, it's got that NASA feel to it. You know, there's like multiple rows of seats and there's like a protocol yeah. and you get on conference calls. There's a guy who looks like John Glenn walking around. Um, that, that sort of process is something that we're trying to, you know, find ways to make smarter and to, uh, you know, automate as we go forward. So, we have people watching the system, but they're not actually watching the system. We have a lot of automated systems. We use, uh, you know, tools uh, that can page us at any moment. We have uh, multiple levels of alerting and monitoring and logging. I mean, we've got probably the largest Kafka installation out there. Um, and then we've got, it's, it, I liken it to, to flying about 10 triple sevens at the same time. Um, We've got backup systems and three different logging systems. And if something goes down, I mean, mm. which it rarely does, but if we do have an issue, I mean, we've got, we've got people immediately, um, 24 seven coverage in uh, three different locations around the world. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's fun. Wow. It sounds weird, so right? from, an, from an outsider's perspective, I could guess that, that there's a couple different parts of Walmart that, need this type of technology. You know, you've got walmart.com, you've got um, like POS, you know, uh, in-store in inventory, that type of system. And then you've got like the logistics of moving, um, you know, packages from warehouses and stuff. I, hmm. Am I correct? Is there anything I've missed? Uh, how many of those those parts of Walmart are a part of kind of the, the scope of what you're trying to build infrastructure for? So I am focused mostly on e-commerce, um, and you are right. There's a there's there's a separate systems for distribution centers. It's ses there's separate systems for stores. I mean, there's there's a whole army of people who are just online every day trying to make it try trying to make sure that the customer can get what they want as quickly as possible. Um, my, my focus is on uptime for the site. Uh, you know, we have every possible monitoring system you could you could think of 
watching the thing 24 seven. Uh, if something, if something goes bump in the night, uh, there's, there's a whole team that just tackles it immediately. Um, it's very, it's one of the reasons why I think I work for Walmart is because I was attracted to this always on 24 seven approach. Um, you know, I, any, any moment of the day, something can happen and, you know, everybody is just all hands on deck. And I like, I like that sense of urgency. That's great. Especially at a big company. I mean, sometimes you hear, you know, larger companies are, are sluggish or slow to adopt things. Um, so it's great to hear that. And you can find, find sort of the excitement in a, in a big shop. Yeah. But in terms of what I try to do to influence people, I mean, I'm, my new thing I'm doing is I'm telling people, you know, go take a break, go do something, go use Heroku, um, for a week, expense it, come back with those same sets of expectations. You know, there's, it's easy for people to, to people who have worked somewhere for a number of years to not really see what's out there. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do is as far as what we do in terms of, you know, tools and builds and systems and Mm. clouds is go out, go out there and use it and come back here and demand the same level of ease of access and self-service. That's exciting. And so is it that you are actually at that level that you've got an internal platform as a service that you've um, created, or is it at a, like a different abstraction layer? You know, are you only at like the infrastructure as a service um, uh, abstraction at this point? So we have a platform as a service. It's called uh, OneOps. And what, what it does for you is it, it takes care of, um, you know, spinning up the VMs. We've got packs. Uh, it's at the point where if you have a Tomcat app or a Node app, the developer really needs to say, these are the coordinates in Nexus and, uh, you know, this is the type of VM I want. And it, and, and it can take care of scaling across clouds, multiple data centers at once. Um, so if you look at it, it, that's another part that I find interesting. You know, if you look at our fleet of VMs for our production website, I'm not going to tell you how many VMs because I'm trying to be careful not to give out too many details, but you know, tens and thousands of VMs you can spin up in about two hours and then you can scale it up and down. It, it can, it can breathe with the traffic over the day because it's got auto scale built in. Um, and one of the big things that Walmart does. So, so a couple things really surprised me when I started work there. We can't just do it on one cloud provider. Everything Walmart does has to be sourced from multiple vendors, right? So. One of the big things about OneOps is that it allows us to have mixed clouds. So we have our own data centers and then we have, you know, public cloud providers that we distribute load over. Um, and we can view it all as one single system, right? And that's to avoid getting locked into one specific vendor um, for our public cloud. And I, that's, that's one of the big things uh, for why, why, why we built out the tool the way that we did. Um, mm. I get that. Yeah, I, I know that at several of the companies that I've been at, it's been about positioning yourself that um, you can burst out uh, and be elastic out to um, public cloud instances and pl- public cloud vendors without needing to be locked into them. Um, and so I it's totally not, so get that that motivation. It's not totally lock in. I mean, it it's it's also flexibility, right? So. What happens hmm, when we right. need 10,000, 20,000 more VMs and our provider doesn't have it? So by using something like OneOps, we're allowed, we can, we can burst into other clouds and we've created a, a 
you can think of it as a abstraction on top of clouds. So we can go to OpenStack, we can go to Azure, we can go to different cloud providers very quickly. That's cool. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your, you know, your day to day. Um, you know, what is it that you're, um, you know, how are you interacting with developers? Um, you know, or is it that you're more interacting with, um, you know, a team of folks that are, are working on these platforms? So I tend to focus on one of our markets every day. So I might focus on groceries one day. I might focus on USGM, which is our mm. .com site the next day. And if you think about DevOps, DevOps supporting a, a team of hundreds of programmers split up into about 20 groups. So if, if, if you want to think about USGM, what, what my team's job is, is we're here to provide a backstop for sort of production issues. We're here to um, help developers think about scale up front. Right. So how how are you going to develop it uh, such that we can deploy it over several clouds? How are you going to develop it so that we're thinking about performance and monitoring up front? Um, and then how are we supporting teams to be able to run their own releases with limited downtime and then creating sort of structures for governance when we need it? And by governance, it's a weird I would never have thought that I'd be using words like governance. Uh, six or seven year, mm. years ago, but mm -hmm. imagine if you had a company that uh, used a tool that was similar to Heroku, um, and you could just let your programmers free and say deploy to production whenever you want. Well, there's right. always going to be bugs and there's always going to be problems. So you would have to create a system to track what people are doing and to sort of keep track of you know downtime events and who's doing what and which of your releases are going live when. So Mm. A lot of our teams that do DevOps end up doing a sort of a, a meta DevOps and then an air traffic function where we just keep track of what's changing. And then, and then we're, we're the team that connects developers to other parts of the org, like InfoSec and the infrastructure teams and the platform teams. Right. So with, um, uh, with that, that sounds like there's a real opportunity for integrating automated testing into that, either at the kind of the unit test level, all the way up to functional tests that are run against uh, sites. Uh, how do, how much does that tie into the mo the monitoring? Like, is that what's, you know, a developer has to include um, testing as part of what they're uh, deploying or um, yeah, so, like, I'm trying to get my head around that governance. It's a spectrum, right? So, so right now, our our electrode applications, um, we have we've actually split our DevOps function into two parts. There's a there's a team that focus on that uh, is fo focused on building tools, right? And then there's a team that I run which is focused on more and more sort of ops and uh, production network architecture. If you look at that tools part. Um, when when you're running at scale, it's not just that you have unit tests. It's not this. It's not just that you have functional tests. You have to have unit tests. You have to have functional tests. You have to have end to end tests because you might have mm. five or six layers in between the front end and whatever storage you might be using. Um, you have to have capacity tests. You have to have not just stress tests. You have to have different kinds of stress tests, like spike tests. Uh, what happens if we sell a product that's really hot? And that gets a huge spike of traffic. Um, you have to have soak tests, right? Tests that run for a number of days and look for things like memory leaks and 
Um, there's just there's so many different kinds of things when you operate at scale that you have to do. You know, you can't just mm -hmm. create systems to recognize and respond to bots. There's diff there's a whole taxonomy of bots, and, and I think that's that's really the thing I found out about sort of testing is that it's not enough just to have a bunch of Selenium tests. Uh, you have to have a framework to run all these different kinds of tests and then create systems to, to fuse all that data into a dashboard that can let a release manager make a decision, right? Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So for a developer that's kind of new to the system or has decided that they need to incept a new project um, or a new application that's going to go into this uh, framework, how do you make it easy for them to to begin? Is it documentation? Is it training? Uh, I'm sure it's probably a bit of both. So we've got a group that we've got a really great group down in uh, uh, Carlsbad, which is uh, I think just north of San Diego, and and they are focused on our tools for automated testing, and they have regular training sessions, but they're but they're also very self service. These are people who have you know, come into the company and they've experienced tools like Heroku, you know, to, when I say a tool that's like Heroku, it, it, it's, it's created so that an application uh, programmer can just focus on what they need to focus on. Um, so when you're sort of spinning up a new electrode app, you've already got pre-built a bunch of tests um, and, and a framework to, to write end-to-end -end tests. Now I have another team that does stress tests and capacity tests, you know, tests, tests focused on um, some of our high profile events. Those are a separate set of tests that we craft uh, separate, you know, uh, separate things that might happen with our traffic profile. And, you know, we, we actually run those tests on public clouds and uh, we, you know, we regularly try to bring the site down. Um, but at a normal company, you might have one team focused on testing. We have, you know, four or five focused on different kinds mm. of tests. It's uh, it can get somewhat overwhelming the 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 level of complexity that you get into once you have to scale something to the size of business that we have. Um, there's there's just there's just a lot of complicating factors. Does that make sense? Yeah, and yeah, it totally makes sense. And does a lot of the requests for new applications or, um, you know, that the internal demand uh, for the business, is that coming top down that it's actually like management is deciding that, all right, we need to create a new section for this part of the, the site or things like that? Or are you also trying to support kind of the, the bottom up? Like, I'm a developer, I just want to write a tool that I'm, maybe it's going to only be internal, but you know what, you have the ability to go and push this public. Um, and what does that look like for them? Because I'm, a, like you said, the governance, I'm sure you don't want to just have something live on walmart.com just because some random developer wanted uh, to, you know, to push the go button. So everything we do in terms of the product uh, usually comes from our product team. We have a whole product group there. But we also mm -hmm. run our org such that if a developer or somebody in the in the engineering function has a good idea, um, it's very easy for people to, you know, put that into the pipeline. When it comes to development tools, our platform team, Strati, and our engineering teams work very closely together. Um, engineers are, 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 are creating new ways to run releases all the time, and we're just sort of merging those into... Um, I, I like to think of it this way. 
it's not that we have one way to do an application. We have two or three um, very well-supported roads that people can sort of travel on, right? Um, when it comes to dev tools, teams are, are really free to innovate and create their own tools, but there are a set of tools that we support. I, this goes back to the whole governance thing. There are teams that we have that can innovate, but then there are teams that we have that are sort of focused on doing it the way that everybody else is doing it. There's a, it's a spectrum of capabilities and a spectrum of teams in terms of uh, our practices. So Did I get that, any more true. abstract? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no this is, it's making complete sense to me. So uh, maybe I've just been in, in it too long, but no, I think a, a lot of our listeners can relate. Yeah, so what, what's the typical interaction between your team and so say a development team? I mean, is it, do you, are they sort of like adopt a project every once in a while? Do they, is it all sort of, uh, inbound uh, requests? Like, how, how does that interaction work? So, I run three DevOps teams. They're, they're, all, they're, they're all totally different. Um, one of my teams is Groceries, and we are very much involved in the releases to the point where we actually run the release playbooks. We have playbooks. We run through these steps. It's very, it's very, um, it's very centralized in terms of function, which doesn't sound very DevOps, but it works for this team. It's the way that they've been working for years. For .com, it's very asynchronous. We've got a lot of teams that are distributed. We've got dev teams that are very self-service, you know, um, teams that can run a release without necessarily stopping and asking for permission. And I think that that is the ideal. Um, from a day-to-day -day perspective, it really depends on what time of year it is and sort of what, what the load is on um, DevOps. But DevOps for for what I do is really more focused on meta DevOps, which is setting up a structure so that developers can take more ownership, right? To the point where, you know, we we uh, we have a front end support team that fields, uh, you know, fast reaction response to incidents that might happen, and we're trying to move more of that back to the developer because mm. if you're really practicing DevOps, it's the developers that should be you know, getting that first call, it's the developers that should be responsible. They are, they are the center, in my opinion, of the IT department, right? Trying to remove, DevOps is about trying to remove the layers between the developer and production. I like that term meta DevOps because um, it feels like DevOps is so overloaded that um, we, we do need something to kind of talk about the fact that building the infrastructure that supports a DevOps culture is very different and, and is not what um, people should be referring to as, as quote unquote DevOps. It's and, really about that, that culture shift. And there's lots of people you you um, you alluded to this earlier. There's lots of people in the industry who are doing DevOps from an operations perspective, and you can go into uh, you know any company and you can see a DevOps team that's really just doing everything for the developers. And to me, that's not really DevOps. That's um, that's just creating another Great. ops team, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Do, ops do, by do a different guys... name. <laughs> Do you guys have a lot of pushback by any of the teams or is everybody sort of ready to adopt, you know, ready to take on the more responsibility? Everybody's on board. I, at, at least all the teams I work with, everybody is, is on board with, uh, you know, doing things autonomously, uh, doing things in, in a way that enables the developers. 
Um, I, I will say that so, sometimes you get um, some dev groups that maybe want to move too quickly. I know that sounds weird to hear after I just got done saying <laughs> I want the developers to take responsibility. But, but sometimes, you know, we might have uh, someone start from a startup and just want to bring the same tools over that they used in a, in a uh, previous job. And, and you have to stop and say, well, at our scale, it really helps if you use the same tools that these other teams use. So there's a, sometimes there's a little bit of, uh, you know, um, adjustment that has to happen to working at scale. And I think I, I've talked to other people at other companies who, who also practice DevOps at a, at a very large scale. That is a challenge. The, the message of DevOps that the three of us have sort of been hearing for the last, I don't know what, eight years now is one of individual mm. empowerment. And I still believe that DevOps is about individual empowerment and developers being able to make choices and have control without going through a restrictive ops group. At the same time, um, you know, you, you can't have a, a complete autonomy when you have thousands of developers. So it's a paradox, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And really, uh, thanks for giving us kind of the insight into how, uh, as you said, the largest company in the world uh, is working uh, on this and, and creating a DevOps culture. So um, thank you, Tim, for joining us today. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about uh, what you're working on? We are on medium.com. You go to medium.com slash Walmart Labs. We have a, a, a tech-focused blog um, where we try to get our developers to share um, detailed posts on what they're working on. And so, Brian, where um, can you be found? Uh, I can be found on Twitter uh, with Brian Demers, all one word, or B Demers everywhere else, GitHub, um, pretty much all the other developer services. Yeah, and uh, I can be found on Twitter at Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. Um, uh, but before we go, let's leave our listeners with something to do. And so this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with uh, something to watch, read, play, or try out some other way. So, Brian, what did you want to leave our listeners with? All right. So last week after the show, uh, Brian and Chris um, inter introduced me to um, both Rescue Time and um, – sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. It was Gyroscope, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Both, both Rescue Time and Gyroscope. Uh, it's been great. I've been sort of tracking what I've been doing online and uh, um, tracking the applications I'm using. It's somewhat creepy, but it's also gives me more insight to, um, you know, what I've been doing and, and where I've been spending, you know, focusing. Um, it's been, Rescue Time has been pretty good, fairly accurate as far as uh, when I'm visiting, uh, you know, Stack Overflow. It knows I'm, you know, more or less doing development. Um so it's really neat. It's re really cool to see. So check it out, um, both rescuetime.com uh, and I think gyroscope.app. What, what is it's, it? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny. It's like gyroscope, but the P-E is the dot, is the is the yeah. top-level domain. So it's hard Google to pronounce. Um, yep. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll have, we'll have a link notes. in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, and I want to share folks with, um, uh, you know, we're early days here in the podcast and one of like my go-to books is, uh, Continuous Delivery by Jez Humble. Um, we will have a link in the show notes to it, but it is like, um, uh, almost, uh, a, a Bible to me. You know, it's a book that I, I refer to uh, frequently. It was definitely something that opened my eyes to, um, just how to do continuous 
delivery. Uh, you know, I can't really sum it up better than the title of the book. Um, so uh, with that, that uh, wraps up our show. Be sure to check us out uh, at our website, codemonkey.fm, and email us at feedback at codemonkey.fm for uh, ideas of things you'd like us uh, to talk about or if you just have um, feedback about the show. And if you'd like to check us, uh, chat with us, uh, we have two places. You can go to our subreddit, uh, codemonkeytalks.reddit.com, or new, we have uh, a Slack team that you can join. So if you go to slack.codemonkey.fm, you can join us there and uh, chat with us. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, Also, hey, if you like this episode, do us a favor, uh, review us on your favorite podcast finder. Um, That just surfaces us uh, to uh, listeners who are trying to discover us. Um, We're on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, uh, Stitcher, um, a couple of the others. Um, It'd be really great if you could uh, help us get heard by more people. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks again to Tim for joining us, and we'll see you next week.